0: Welcome to This Week in Local, a Locology podcast featuring lively conversations about the
1: local digital ecosystem, hosted by Locology analysts Mike Bolin and Charles Laughlin. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This Week in Local. I'm Charles Laughlin, joined by my co-host, Mike Bolin. Mike, how's it going? Hi, Charlie. Doing well. Great. So, Mike, why don't you tell us about something you're working on?
0: Yeah. So, uh, Amazon did something interesting this week um, in the sort of... Ever-expanding Amazon universe. The latest move um, is that you know they continue to find us new new places to to, to sell sell you things, um, and the latest is sort of carving out space within mobile games and apps. So this thing is called Amazon Anywhere, and it's basically a program that lets app developers or publishers sort of have a have a an easy turnkey you know e-commerce store uh right within right within their app um and and the particular use case they're going for is like a merch store right um so the launch partner is uh, niantic's new game peridot uh, or peridot i'm I'm not sure how it's pronounced uh this is basically the follow-up game to pokemon go um Mm -hmm. and what they're doing is they have this sort of neat little merch store right within the app you can order t-shirts hats whatever um and if you think about it, it's a fitting use case for anything that is like fan based like i was thinking ticketing apps or like um whatever app you use to sort of aggregate your sports scores and you also want to buy like team apparel um so it's sort of like a a neat little one-stop shop for users um in that they can order stuff right within the app And I think it's a nice service to these developers because it allows them to kind of, I don't know, carve out a secondary revenue stream. I I don't think the revenue will be terribly consequential, but it allows, you know, sort of a democratized, easy, again, turnkey way for app developers to just sort of have a nice little merch store within their uh, user experience. Um, So, from a user perspective, uh, it's pretty easy to, it's very Amazon. You basically like link your Amazon account to that app. And that's sort of the advantage Amazon has here in doing stuff like this, because, you know, people trust Amazon, everyone has an Amazon account, and then you sort of know the checkout flow really well, as opposed to like doing all that work to what I call activation energy, like, like form a new e-commerce relationship with like some new, you know, provider or one off app right i mean you, no one wants to do that on a touchscreen where you type in your your address your credit card number all that stuff like amazon already has all that stuff so they have that advantage from like a ux perspective and then then the other advantage is obviously like i said um, giving app developers and publishers especially smaller ones that don't have that capability on their own to sort of quickly launch a uh, some sort of like app store, again, sort of merch stores are the use case here. And in that way, it's interesting, in that way I feel like what this is really competitive with is something like Shopify, which has always had that value proposition to sort of lower the barriers and democratize e-commerce functionality. That's sort of what Amazon's doing here. And this is actually the second move in you know a few months we wrote about this a few months ago where amazon's it's called buy with prime and it's sort of similar it allows third-party merchants to sort of like have amazon's checkout flow ordering logistics return processing all of that just in a turnkey way so what they announced this week this amazon anywhere is sort of like a smaller version of that for merch stores but you, you can see a trend here where, where amazon is trying to grow its e-commerce business by extending beyond its own, you know, dot-com domain. And I think that represents other strategic <laughs> stuff that we can get into. Uh, but that's sort of what we're looking at
1: uh, this week. So a couple things here. One, I, I, a term just popped into my head and I don't know, if it's already in wide use, embedded commerce. So yeah, yeah okay. I think of like of embedded finance, you know, where you sort of embed, yeah. you know, it feels like the, commerce version of embedded finance or whatever um, maybe that's wrong i don't know um well too bad the term e-commerce is already taken or that would have been an, an well a logical, true but this thing is for... a slightly different take on that yeah, but embedded uh, commerce i like it yeah. um the other th- thought that popped into my head is aren't merch if i'm a it, with it, sort of within the gaming environment why wouldn't merch stores already be very commonplace are they i'm not a gamer so i wouldn't know is, they might have, be, mm-hmm. but the, the the ones who have done it have sort
0: of done these like more difficult homegrown types of where you have to create iterations. yeah, you have
1: to build the damn thing instead of just yeah, em- you gotta build it. the damn thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. That's interesting. Where do you think this goes? I mean what So um
0: like I said, I think there are a few fitting use cases that are sort of obvious. I think that that it could expand into other things that we haven't thought of yet. You know, I mentioned several times the the merch store use case. It could have other types of use cases and, and it, it'll take that sort of third-party integration, see how people pick it up and run with it. So I think it's going to be interesting to see where people take it, one. And then two, sort of strategically speaking, I think the important question always in things like this is the question of why. And, and I won't sort of dwell on this too much because we've mentioned this phenomenon before where companies like Amazon um, you know, the larger you get, the harder it is to find new growth. Right. Just law of la- large numbers, larger sort of revenue base to grow on top of. So per- percentage growth over time just decelerates. So that's why you see constant attempts to just sort of find these new areas of growth. Amazon is the king of doing this with like larger stakes bet, like bets like getting into healthcare and stuff right. like that. Right, that, but this that
1: is, feels bigger than this. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. This is a smaller version of that of incremental yeah. places to find growth. But I think the concept is interesting where it is extending beyond its own walls to basically increase e-commerce ordering volume by allowing people to sort of like have yeah. these little outcroppings of Amazon-like stores in their own properties. Any
1: sense of the scope of this opportunity?
0: So I think that like for an individual creator, like I said, the revenue, the incremental revenue
1: they're going to see for the, is probably consequential. the creator, consequential. The, builder, the developer, whatever. Right. So
0: I mean it, it's it's nice for them. It's a little mm-hmm. bit of incremental revenue and and it's also more of just like a service or a sign of legitimacy like hey, we've got a merch right. store. That's cool, isn't it? Yeah. But I think for Amazon it it will be consequential if they can sort of scale it in like a I mean Amazon's playbook, low margin, high volume way. Like if this ends up being the go-to way to start, you know, a, a, an e-commerce store, I think that, you know, yeah. it, I it's going to be operating on like an affiliate revenue model, and Amazon has those structures all in place where um, you know they essentially get a revenue share for for powering the the, the store backend functionality. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's really like it's it's a matter of if they can do that at scale. It it could be you know a nice little yeah. bump for
1: Amazon itself. But it's small with the potential to be not small, but not. Yeah. Ding, and, ding, and I think necessarily, that, yeah. yeah
0: and, and the target sort of developers will be a wide range. Like Niantic is a fairly large software developer. Mm-hmm. So I think it works for something like that, as well as the smaller players that I mentioned, who are, I think can probably see the great, like that long tail, they'll see the greatest yeah. value here because within a day they can have a merch store as opposed to, you know, as you said, building the damn thing.
1: Now, this again, a tangent perhaps, but we were talking about 3D not too long ago with Sarah from Unity, and I know Unity's Mm -hmm. had some challenges in the last couple of weeks, but um, do you see a 3D application for, you know, in in the sort of the 3D, you know, future environment for these stores to exist in in that sort of uh, environment? Yeah, that...
0: That could be the next step. I mean, Perido Niantic's yeah. game—that's a follow-up to, to Pokemon Go. I mean, that's an AR-based game, so the UX itself of gameplay mm-hmm. is very much of the, these like 3D elements, or you know, th- that you're interacting with. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that it gets interesting if you're talking about 3D environments that you're sort of walking around in or embodied, like things like, you know, Fortnite or Roblox or these sort of 3D experiences where it's not like going to a 2D page within the app, which is what we're talking about today, Mm -hmm. but, you know, sort of having your character walk into a structure that is, you know, a store and then, you know, sort of, so I think it's, it's that, that just brings sort of like a 3D embodied gamify, gamified way to do the same shopping, that could be part of it. And that's actually easy to do. That's more of just like a tweak on the front end mm-hmm. to bring what we're talking about here into something like that. I think the the hunger or the demand for those types of experiences The jury's still out on that. I mean, over the last year and a half when everyone's been all hyped up on metaverse hype, I think that was the idea that instead of going to 2D pages to do your shopping, you have your character walk around a virtual mall and like go into stores. I I really don't see that as really additive in any way besides just being like a neat novelty. so it could get there to answer your question. I think it could be fitting to some types of experiences that themselves are 3D, so you're integrating the store in a way that's native to the thing itself. That sort of makes sense. So we could see that too.
1: Okay. Pretty interesting stuff. So I I'm going to pivot to my topic which couldn't possibly be more different. So <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's very physical real world uh, related and I was. Re- I wrote something. I think it was last week. I, I lose. I keep saying I always lose track of when I write things, and which is actually true. Uh, but it was recently I wrote something, and uh, the the kernel that kind of got me interested was a study I saw. I think it was from Alignable, which is you know we could probably have no c- conversation about uh, you know what the hell is Alignable anyway. I keep getting messages from people saying they want to connect with me on Alignable. I've ignored them for years, but at any rate, they did. It's put like an SMB stuff. social network, you know. I know like I, but I've, I've always pretended you know, that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And um anyway, they put out a study, you know, SMB related, saying that SMBs, and I forgot the numbers, but it was a 40%. Some significant number of SMBs are having trouble meeting their rent obligations, whether that's office mm-hmm. rent, restaurant rent, you know, strip mall rent, whatever it is. Okay, you know, that, that was significant. And For some reason that I'm still trying to remember, (laughs) I pivoted that to a uh, sort of a second half of the of the article discussion of well, what's going on with you know commercial real estate, you know, and and you know with the high office vacancy rates, well, and I'm you know all the stuff going on with remote work, and then uh, you know this data point about people having trouble paying the rent kind of led me to think about this, and where I kind of came to was that there is um, a trend might be a little strong, but there is movement towards, and this has been going on, been building for a little while now. So if if you read about this a few months ago, I know it, it's been written about for a few months at least. Um, the idea of converting all these supposedly empty offices into residential buildings. We have a glut of office space and a shortage of residential inventory in big cities. But you know, National nationwide in general. And what we're seeing, because the thing that had always been in my head is that doesn't happen because there are two different types of buildings. It's too big of a pain to convert a office building into a residential building just from construction cost standpoint. And then there's permitting and zoning and all this other garbage that makes it really difficult to do, which is why you hadn't seen much of it historically. Well, apparently that's changing to some degree. And there was some data that was interesting, there was something from CBRE, which I think is kind of a insights uh, organization for commercial real estate. Basically through December of last year that there, there had been 42 of these things completed. And I'm not sure from what starting point, but apparently are apparently about 217 of these big office to residential conversions underway. Washington DC has issued a 20 year uh, tax abatement program on these kinds of projects as well. So you're starting to see financial incentives from cities and states like California uh, to try to reduce some of the barriers, try to reduce some of the costs, because it is costly from a bureaucratic standpoint and just from a a capital standpoint uh, to do these things. But, you know, when you see empty office buildings and then extremely high residential rents, you kind of put two and two together and you wonder why isn't this happening more? And apparently it is happening more. You know, if you, I think the thing I wrote a few weeks ago cited so those projects going on in most major cities. I think I forget which building in Manhattan. I don't want to dig around in my notes right now, but I think it was the MetLife Building. I stand, I'll, I'll stand corrected if that was wrong. Is is undergoing just such a conversion in your, in Manhattan. So you're seeing it in Manhattan, San Francisco, Washington D.C., Chicago, all the big ones. You know, this is starting to happen. I don't know if it's going to transform the landscape. If if you see a big downtown where it still feels empty, it's probably still going to feel empty for a while, but this might at least nibble around the edges of it. And, you know, it has implications for SMB. It has implications for this whole future of work conversation as implications for this whole, what do we do with downtown's conversation, which is a big one, you know, that's going on now. Uh, I just, you know, this one just got my imagination going if nothing else. Yeah.
0: Well, whenever you see something like this where it takes care of two or three problems in one fell swoop, it makes sense. Of course, the devil's in the details. You mentioned yeah. that, you know, why aren't we doing this already? And I think you, you also answered your own question, which is, I think that one of the hold holdups here is normally just the pure sheer bureaucracy around the zoning. Yeah. And I think that there is a little bit of an impetus for politicians to sort of, sign a lot of those things through and rubber stamp it because it is you know sort of a political win if they can again get rid of you know two problems in one fell swoop mm-hmm. the, the, the zoning and that type of stuff that they'll they'll take care yeah. of that
1: yeah and apparently there's some action in Congress going on you know um there there seems to be an impetus both from politically financially uh from an urban planning standpoint and there's a lot of you know if you i, I sort of poured through a lot of Stuff about this over the last couple of days. You know, there's obviously the skeptical voices out there saying this doesn't really solve the problem. You know, the these, uh, it may just be one of several, and I don't know what the other several are, to be honest with you, solutions to the down, you know, the challenges with downtowns and so on. And, you know, and a lot of these, and they say, depending on the type of building, the conversion is either relatively straightforward or nearly impossible. You know, like you take a hotel lots of hotel inventory, you know, lots of kind of dead hotel buildings around. I don't know what the numbers are around that, but apparently it's fairly relatively straightforward to convert a former hotel into a studio apartment building. That kind of makes sense. It's apparently very difficult to take a newer office building. And I'm not sure if that means 10 years or five years or 20 years even uh, and convert it because they have these large floor plans and it's just, very specifically designed for office. Yeah, versus, the, the plumbing. Yeah, it,
0: yeah. The, even plumbing the plumbing, the power for, all that stuff. Yeah, the plumbing was built for a hundred people on a floor with like two bathrooms. and right. To expand that to individual units that each need their own bathroom, is the cost just is crazy. Tear down. Yeah, it's yeah.
1: not. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's in every case more makes more sense to tear it down and just rebuild a residential building. And then there's, you know, with older office buildings, I was reading, you know, in California in particular, seismic refitting, you know, (laughs) and things like that, that you have to look at. There's just crazy barriers to this. And, but it, you know, it's one of those things where, why don't we just do this? Well, here are 10 reasons why it's expensive. It's bureaucratically a nightmare. It's et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Some of those barriers are starting to come down. I don't think they're all going to all go away. And some buildings will never go through this conversion, but we're seeing more of it. And it's probably, I don't know if it's going to put much of it down. Apparently there was like 4 million, there's like a deficit of like 4 million housing units nationwide uh, in terms of what is projected to be needed and what is projected to be on the market. You know, mm. That's one estimate I saw this morning. You know, There could be other estimates that are higher and lower, but that's the one I saw This does it scratch the surface of that 4 million? I doubt it does much more than that, you know? Yeah. And that Uh,
0: undersupply will just naturally, just, you know, econ 101, that will drive up housing costs, which I think is what we're seeing, especially in the rental market.
1: Rental markets are crazy now. Um, Whereas the office vacancy rates are rising steadily, they haven't. Yeah. And uh, uh, residential uh, vacancy rates. I don't know exactly where they are now, but lower than the office ones. And and the trend is opposite. The cost, you know, rents are going down for offices. They're going up for residential, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, all the things that make it clear that we have a residential housing stock issue, you know, big time. Anyway, just something interesting I came across. It has a local component to it. Just wanted to raise it. Mike, uh, Seems like as good a time as any to wrap this one up. Do you want to read us out? Sure. Thanks,
0: Charlie. And thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been This Week in Local. Stay tuned every week for more episodes. You can find the show on all major podcast networks and find out more at locology.com. Please subscribe, like and comment. So I'm Mike Boland with Charles Lachlan. Our producer is Dara Sweat. Thanks for listening and see you next week.
1: Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Locology's This Week in Local with Mike Boland and Charles Lachlan. Be sure to subscribe for more.